so I, um, I want you to know that um, there are times when uh, standing here and speaking seems almost uh, out of touch with a reality like what we're grieving over this morning. Um, and there are times when the Holy Spirit prompts me to go a whole other direction. Um, <clears throat> but as you'll see, I hope in this uh, second in a series from the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as we're referring to this series, uh, this is really a, uh, a message that um, will seem playful on the surface, but was in exceedingly serious and had tremendous implications, not only for that uh, church that was about to be born, but for our church. And let me get more personal right away, for, your, for you and for your heart. So I got to thinking, you know, Lord, that's probably exactly what we need to hear. Um, the, the events of this week for the Wilsons is uh, an ever-present reminder that life is not um, guaranteed, and our days are, are uh, you know, in his hands, and so we've got to live them fully. This morning will help you answer that question, I think, I hope. I, um, huh, this will be abrupt, but I don't know if you watched football yesterday. Um, I really only watched the late game because I wanted to see grown men that are all, almost all of them twice my size, and I'm a big guy, smashing into each other uh, for, you know, 60 minutes in, um, a, did I mention it was zero degrees in um, Green Bay? So I just thought, I got to watch this happen, and you, it was just awful. I mean, it was, it was amazing in some ways, but it was just a collision of, of bodies, but, um, and it's a perfect uh, game as far as football fans are concerned, right? But um, I was thinking about what went on prior to that game in any game, in any sport. And it's, uh, it's kind of a coach putting together a roster of those who will take to the field, whether it's football, 11 guys, or basketball, five, or hockey, I don't know how many. <laughs> and soccer, who cares? But anyway, uh, <laughs> actually... Um, Why are a dozen people leaving the room right now? That's just not fair. Um, anyway, um, the coach kind of makes uh, decisions, and his, his or her decision is based on who's going to help our team win this game or do the best we can for this game. And, uh, you know, obviously uh, those decisions, some of them are made way off uh, before the game. Somebody has an injury, they're in a cast, or they're recovering somehow. But others are what we call game time decisions. The game will start, and um, curious media people ask, is the you know, famous receiver or running back or whoever going to play? And sometimes the coach will answer, it's a game time decision, meaning we hope so, obviously, because they're needed on the team, but we're just not sure of that. So that got me thinking about uh, today's study. And it draws attention to um, such a decision that the disciples uh, were faced with 
get this, as a game time decision, it literally was the eve, and I don't mean like Christmas Eve is the day before, but in days from that story that we're going to read, this uh, Acts chapter 1, if you haven't turned there, uh, we're going to, we're, the, days later, the game was on. Uh, it's not a game, really. It was a church that was born. And the Holy Spirit came, and we're going to pick up that wonderful event next Sunday. But there's this really big thing that takes up literally half of the first chapter. So it's worthy of the Holy Spirit's uh, print, if, if I may say, for us to see what was going on and and, and just sort of get into the locker room huddle a little bit, if I can put it that way, and experience what was at stake. And, and then most importantly, how the decision was made uh, in this very important moment for the, this group of people. So um, let me read it, and then let's just pull pieces of it out, and uh, we'll be on our way, okay? So uh, chapter 1 of the Acts of the Apostles, or last week, we sort of dubbed it Acts of the Holy Spirit, because this series is about the Holy Spirit. You'll see that throughout our study. So chapter 1, verse 12 picks up um, after Jesus had ascended to heaven, and the angels say, hey, go back to Jerusalem. He, he'll come again. Verse 12, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath's day walk. From the city, it's east of the city, Sabbath's day walk. They weren't permitted to walk very far. When they arrived, they went upstairs in Jerusalem to the room where they were staying. Those present, so he's going to explain they right now. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together, look at verse 14, constantly in prayer. Gives you a little insight of what the spirit of this locker room gathering looked like. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with Jesus' brothers. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, so it's not just this room they're gathered in, but I perceive this to be a, a, a growing, gathering crowd of people. I'm going to suggest wondering like crazy, what's next? They knew there was a gathering inside the room, and they're there trying to hear or peek and see for themselves. And Peter then says, verse 16, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. So he's going back seven centuries, eight centuries. Concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our members, and he shared in our ministry. Now, I apologize, this gets graphic, but it's in the Bible. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilt out. 
Good morning, church. <laughs> right? I, I, I give him a break. I mean, first of all, the Holy Spirit wrote this. But secondly, who, who did he choose to write it? A doctor. So he's not grossed out quite as much as you and me, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, everyone in Jerusalem heard about this. So they called that field in their language a kaldama. A kaldama. That is field of blood where this took place. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms. Again, he's pointing back. May this place be deserted. Let there be no one who dwells in it. And, still quoting, may another take his place of leadership. Now you get a sense where they are going and what needs to be happen, need to happen here in the final hours before the big game. Verse 21, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism, so he's going back three years, to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, 45 days earlier, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men. Joseph, called Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Wow. Quite a scene. My first thought was, how does that preach? I mean, there's, there's just a kind of an important little discussion. But how does that apply to me and to you? Uh, we'll get there. Okay, so when, when the sight of Jesus, uh, not long before this, ascending to heaven, this is all in the earlier part of chapter 1, the disciples did as they were commanded, and that was to leave where Jesus ascended, which was across the Kidron Valley on the east, leave that place, go down the Kidron Valley and up to Jerusalem, and make your way to the room where, where I want you to be. Uh, about a half a mile west is the distance here, so it doesn't take very long. Uh, most people can make such a walk um, to Jerusalem. They presumably went back to that room, and I'm going to guess that they were wondering a little bit of the details. If you go back to verse 5 at the opening of this, the details of what Jesus meant when he said, uh, John the Baptist baptized with water, but in a few days, in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, even if you don't get that, you know it's different than water, right? Because you were one of the apostles, disciples, that were there at the Jordan, and it, and it happened in front of you. And it wasn't different, really, than anybody else uh, in the water uh, respect, right? He went in the water and came up out of the water. What happened next was very different. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove. The voice of the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. So 
there's this sense that there's something about to happen, and I suspect it was big, not small, big on their hearts when they were locked in on, in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. By the way, can I take you back to the Mount of Olives? Go down the valley and up the east side. Do you realize that just the last week of Jesus' life, he spent, there are three different significant occasions where Jesus was found in the Mount of Olives. In fact, one of the most extensive teachings in all of the New Testament is recorded by Matthew in chapter 24, Mark in chapter 13, and Luke in chapter 21 called the Olivet Discourse. And it's one of these three visits when he was back on the Mount of Olives. You got to read that, by the way. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. They all kind of jive together because they're describing the same thing. But show me your hands if you ever wonder what the end times will look like. Anybody had that on their mind in the last three years, right? Okay, that's where Jesus talked about it because the disciples had the same virus. No, not exactly, but they... They had the same question on their mind. Is this the end? And Jesus says, well, let me talk about that. And he gave this long discourse. You ought to, you ought to read that. It's just, but I wanted to get this point out. That same location, Zechariah the prophet in the Old Testament says in chapter 14, verse 4, guess where Jesus is coming back to? Okay. Not your neighborhood. Not, you know, he's coming back to the same location. Kind of cool. All right. Um, so we're here in this room, verse 13 tells us. Uh, the disciples, uh, they now number uh, 11. And they're joined by Jesus and uh, his, uh, Jesus' mother, rather, Mary. And uh, some other women, we don't know who they are, but we know we're told his brothers as well. And that's significant because back in Mark, we're told that they weren't so convinced by their brother and son. In fact, Mark chapter 3, verse 21 says they actually came to the house where Jesus was attempting to bring him home because they thought that he had, like, his belts were slipping, we would say today. Do you, do you realize that? We kind of brush over that, but they weren't so convinced then. They were like, even his mother. So somewhere in there, his mother was like, ah, I know what the angel told me, but I'm not I'm struggling. It's certainly true of his siblings. Well, by this gathering, Luke points them out, which makes it reasonable to assume that they had worked through all their resistance. They were no longer holdbacks, wondering, scratching their heads. We don't get all of this. And I want to be fair, but I think, I think even his mother, we say she treasured up all these things in her heart, treasured up what? Well, this, this epic plan God chose for her to bring the Son of God into the world. But we overestimate, I think, her complete understanding of what he was about to do and, and, and uh, 
you know, the implications it would have. Certainly not until later. Um, so they had changed, and I'm, I'm thinking that's why Luke would even include them here. They weren't disciples of Jesus. They're, they're can I say it, a step closer than disciples? They're family. That's my boy. That's my brother. Um, while, while you're taking that in, verse 15 draws attention to a big crowd, a sizable crowd. Uh, we do know this about the crowd, that they were believers. See that word? It's not just tire kickers, looky-loos, you know, curious. Um, these are believers, probably in, in, with the same or similar interest. What's next? So Peter um, did something that needed doing. He, especially with the big game only days away, he speaks to an issue. Who's going to be the starting string here? Um, according to the Gospels, Jesus had selected 12 disciples. We all get that, right? Uh, but <clears throat> he even made a statement, by the way, about a future day where those 12 disciples will actually sit on 12 thrones and they will lead, they will be judging 12 tribes in Israel. So 12 seems to be a repeating number here. So the fact is, the problem is, <laughs> we, the team was down one. Um, you get in trouble on a, in a football game if you have 13, but you also get in trouble if you have 11. So the game's to be played in sport with 12. I would suggest for even bigger reasons, this game was supposed to be played with 12 for those reasons. There's 12 Disciples, Jesus worked with 12, and so it prompted Peter to stand and speak about this roster change. And he explains uh, in these words that we just read how to go about deciding the 12th disciple and who they would be. So he begins by describing from the Psalms how uh, Judas... Um, was, was off the tee. Uh, verses 16 and following pick up that theme. Um, a month and a half earlier, Jesus had pointed out in Psalm 41, verse 9, one who breaks, this is, you'll recognize to be that night when he was sharing a supper known as the Last Supper. And he said around that table when they were all still there, one of you will betray me. One who's here at this table and breaking bread with me will betray me. Um, he actually said that the last night he was with his disciples, and Peter gives them this graphic description about how it all happened. Um, I have a question, though, that gets real present when I think about this scene, and when I think again, as I did this week, about Judas, how could Judas betray Jesus? I mean, seriously. 
Um, I've traveled different parts of the world with good friends, and we grew close, and we're still close. Um, that was a two-week trip. These guys had been with Jesus for how, how long? Three years, 36 months. They were really close. Uh, it wasn't a casual hangout together. This was we go places. We've watched you. We've listened to you preach powerful messages. We've seen you again and again touch and change and heal and forgive. Only God does that stuff. So back to my question, how, how is it possible that Judas turned on Jesus? Um, he had the same access, as far as we can tell, to Jesus. Uh, he, he heard his teachings, he, he, yet he turned on him. Let me give you a couple of suggestions. One is uh, what we're told in, uh, it's, it's in John 13, I think it's verse 2. And then the other place it's mentioned is Luke's first book, the gospel bearing his name. In Luke 22, it says that that night Satan entered Judas to betray Jesus. You remember those words? It's right there in those passages. So that's one explanation. And when the devil enters somebody, what does the devil bring with him? Well, malice and harm and deceit and destruction. In fact, to use Jesus' words in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So the thief that night, Satan, enters Judas. That's one explanation. With the, with, with the attributes the devil takes with him everywhere he goes. To steal, kill, and destroy. But then I got to thinking, is that a, is that, does that cover it all? I don't think so. Let's agree that Judas made a choice. He was not just, you know, oh, okay, I guess I better go here. And then later that night, he comes and meets him at the Mount of Olives and kisses him as the scriptures would say, no, um, I, think, I think Judas also had a choice. Uh, I'm not an archer, but I've watched it, and I'm impressed by compound bows and stuff like that. One thing is very clear to me. You can't unshoot an arrow, right? You just don't. Same with a gun. You can't. He made a decision that he couldn't unmake. He released that arrow, if you will, and betrayed Jesus. Um, I think there's a third reason, though. And this gets really personal for us today. I think Ju Judas is an illustration of a principle that lives on. And that principle is this. You can be really close to Jesus yet far away. Let me tell you what I'm thinking. With no indictment on any school in particular. But you can go to a Christian school 
and it won't do you a hill of beans. It won't impact your life. But it's a Christian school. Um, you, you can go to a Christian camp. Okay? Here's one that gets really personal. You can be raised in a Christian home. And, and find that it doesn't, just doing that doesn't change lives. So it seems to me that you, you, can, you can walk with Jesus and not really be walking with Jesus. You're following the hints for, these are like breadcrumbs. I, I was like, wow, wait a minute, wait a minute. That seems to be a version of what goes on uh, uncomfortably often. Can I say it? You can go to church. You could, have, you could have been here a long time. I've been here a long time. And heard a lot of appeals about the gospel. And it's like, you leave and go, that was a good sermon. Or, man, he lost me. I fell asleep in the first inning, you know, or whatever. But it didn't come home and make, it wasn't real to you. Um, Judas, though he was numbered among the 12, was still... Judas, in spite of Jesus. Um, and he, his fate was horrible. I suspect that's what C.S. Lewis meant when he said there will be people in heaven that will say, say, where's so-and-so? I don't want to be that guy. I have a dear friend that prayed to receive Christ about a hundred times, he said. <laughs> now, you know what? I was tempted to give him my theological answer. But one is enough. Okay, and it's true. But he needed reassurance. He needed somebody to say again in 1 John chapter 5. This is God's testimony. Whoever has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Let me ask you, do you have the Son of God? Because religion won't cut it. It, it won't even come close. You, in fact, you're going to feel ripped off if that's the basis of your salvation. It's belonging to Jesus Christ. And do you know that the Bible says when you become a Jesus belonger, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4 say, Romans chapter 8 say, he comes to live inside you and stay there and bring you safely home. Problem free? No. Pain free? Not even close. Jesus said, I suffered a ton. What makes you think that won't happen to you? So, I'm just feeling compelled based on this scripture. It's, I'm not going rogue here. I'm just saying, look, um, do you know Jesus? Uh, now let's get to the decision quickly. Um, or 
Somebody needs to go tell the children we're going to be here till one. All right. That was a nervous laugh I heard from you all. Um, so here's the deal. Peter is announcing the need to fill the 12th man spot on the, on the roster. Right? And he, he gives the criteria. You need, you, there needs to be history with Jesus. From, he dates it even. From the Jordan River, the baptism of Jesus. Were you there? Matthew, four, uh, Matthew 3. Were you there? The next marker along the way is on the other end of this thing. Were you there when Jesus rose from the dead? Were you there to verify with your own eyes the tomb's empty and he's standing here? That's what's meant there. And then, there's one more he mentions. Were you there when everybody's head went on the Mount of Olives? When he ascended back to the Father, which is recorded for us at the beginning here. And the angel said, hey, guys, what are you doing? What are you staring at the sky? He'll be back, but not soon. You know, that kind of thing. So that was the criteria for this. I got to thinking why those criteria. And it's an easy answer, I think. It's for credibility's sake. Because who are they? Who are these 12? They're looking for the 12th. They're going to be tellers. You don't want secondhand info. I heard about this Jesus guy. You ought to give your life to him. No, no, no. You need to be a first person per witness. The apostle's job was to go and tell. And so as a messenger, it makes all the difference in telling if you know what you're telling. Or more correctly, you know who you're telling. Jesus. You with me? This totally fits. So let me make it, let me make it really kind of a sentence that you'll remember. You, you don't, people don't have their lives changed as much if you say he's, he's a savior. This Jesus, he's a savior. Or this Jesus, he's the savior. That singles him out as the, the Savior. No, no, no. What makes this different? He is my Savior. Why did that change it? I got chills when I said it. This is not a historical person alone. This is not, uh, there's a lot of uh, offers out there, but he's the right offer. No, this is, he is the way, the truth, the life offer. No one gets to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Amen? That's the difference. And then you say it in first person. And it changes everything. He is not a Savior, not the Savior. He's my Savior. The same exact thing happens when we talk about truths in the Bible. I can tell you Psalm 46, 1, my favorite psalm, God is our refuge and our strength, our ever-present help in times of trouble. But when I tell you the trouble I'm going through, and I tell you the, the helper that has been there with me through it all, suddenly you want to sign up, don't you? I do. I want to get saved again. I'm so, I'm, I'm in, I'm so persuaded. Same thing with prayer. Some of you just are such great prayers. I, I meet with a group of men every Thursday, and there's just insanely cool prayers in there. How do you put insanely and cool in the same? 
you get my point? I'm revved up here. Holy Spirit revved. So I, I just, I'm around these people and, and don't just talk, they don't just talk about the importance of prayer. We don't, ha- we don't sit around that room talking about prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I, don't, I, I know that great things happen uh, through prayer. And when you tell me those great things that have happened through prayer in your life, you know what? I pray more. That's how it works. Um, I think that's why the Apostle Paul never stopped talking about Acts chapter 9. We're coming there in a couple of months or years, however long it takes. <laughs> but he was on his way to Damascus, and he was blown away. He talked and talked and talked about that for the rest of his days. Um, so, oh, My heart is full. Um, I I know you read about Joseph. He had a couple other names. Um, Akaldama, and um, I don't know, that's the the place where they buried Judas. Um, He had the names Justice and Barsabbas. Uh, I don't know if that's a middle last name exactly, but, and then there's Matthias. Those are the two. And um, <clears throat> and they're selected because they fit the criteria that would give them the credibility. Two equally solid candidates. So they wondered who, who gets it. And that's where they cast these lots to make the decision. Um, we used to do uh, draw straws. Anybody do that? So you, you know, you conceal the, and if you drew the, was it the short one? Because I always drew the short one. Yeah. Uh, then you're picked, okay? Uh, Swindoll whimsically says they rolled dice, okay? It's, it's not this big complicated, like, you know, uh, the person that witching for water or something like that. This is something simple like this. But um, it was practiced in the Old Testament. It's kind of in the category of fleeces, if you want to use that as a label. Um, Judges chapter 6 with Gideon. But, but um, let's not miss the spirit that I tried to emphasize when we read it the first time. Verse 14 says there's a whole gob of people here gathered in a spirit of prayer. Okay, that means it's not a a roll of the dice. That was a mint, but anyway, um, it was not that. It was let's pray, and then and then and then we're done praying. Now we'll roll the dice. Okay, and something gets a little more serious there, right? Um, Here's the deal: they um, it it repeats in verse twenty four. Notice, then they prayed. Lord, you know everyone's heart. This is their prayer. Show us which of these two you have chosen. Isn't that a great spirit? 
You know everyone's heart. I, I read that again because I want to call your attention to what they didn't pray. You do not read any reference there to their uh, family lineage. We're from the McCrackens or the Joneses or whoever. They, you don't read anything about uh, their academic achievements. There's nothing mentioned at all in verse 24 about their job history, um, their, their educational background. None of it. What's mentioned? Their heart. You know every heart, Lord. See how God gets to the heart of the, <laughs> pardon the pun, he gets really to what matters the most. They prayed about that very thing. The heart. You know the heart, Lord. And the Holy Spirit directed them to the one with that heart. I've got so much to talk about in a story that I want you to read about. Let me just have you read the story. It's in 1 Samuel 16, and it covers about eight verses. And it's uh, quickly. It's the... It's the story of how Israel's first king, Saul, had failed. And the throne had been taken from him by God. And God sent Samuel to a man named Jesse in search for Saul's successor, the second king of Israel. And he gets there. Samuel gets there. He's a man of God. And he comes there and he meets Jesse and says, Here, I'm about to uh, anoint Israel's next king. And I'm told you've got uh, the king, uh, one of your sons. And, um, and the first son came out, presumably the oldest son. And, the, and, and Samuel's thinking to himself, the text that you'll read explains that. Hey, this must be the guy. Big, strong, you know, solid, going to be the guy. And uh, he's about to anoint him. And, and, and God said, no, he's not my guy. And then Jesse begins to bring other sons. And he brings a total of seven sons before Samuel. Samuel's kind of worked over by now thinking, oh, my goodness. Yeah, we got the guy. And he's thinking it's got to be this seventh guy. And, and so he asks, is there, is there anybody else? I, maybe I got my wires crossed. <laughs> I don't know what he thought at that moment. But uh, Jesse said, well, actually. Yeah, there is. Um, he's not. He's not here right now. He's uh, he's actually the youngest, uh, and he's <laughs> he's out in the fields. He works a who cares job with sheep. <laughs> you know, I mean, you hear it in his voice. He's just going who. You know, these are the men, the qualified. And the Holy Spirit whispers to Samuel, "Call for that boy." And he comes, and God said, he's my guy. You know why? Because he was a man after my own heart. That's what God looks for. It's what he found in David. It's what he wants in me. It's what he's looking for in you. Am I that woman with the heart for God? You can read it later in chapter 13, verse 22. In Acts, this was not just a story from the Old Testament. The writer there says, David was a man after God's own heart. 
so good. And he was God's choice. So let me leave it with this. Um, You get the point of my message. How are you selected to be that 12th player that takes the field? You're that woman that says, my heart's for God. You're that man that says the same thing. Uh, Because God is suiting up a team to change the world. We'll read next week. Days later, it all changed. He's looking for someone who knows Jesus as a result of spending time with Jesus. That's how the heart gets properly based and cultivated. He's looking for someone who believes that, the, that what we just read, that Jesus, yeah, he did die on a cross and was buried and rose again and returned to the Father in heaven and will return again. I believe that. I, I just do. I got nothing if I don't have that. That's what God's looking for. And he's looking for someone who shows with their heart in it, it, that they belong to Jesus every way, every day. Do you fail? Yeah, I sure do. It's not the failure that disqualifies me. It's the lack of proper recovery. He says, God, help me. Put me back on my feet. I blew it again. That's what Jesus is looking for when it comes to a man or woman that can take the 12th position on the team. I'd like you to bow your heads with me. Uh, as I lead us in prayer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave a moment for you to pray as well. So bring the lights down, David. Let's just give people a chance. We're going to sing a beautiful response to this truth this morning. We want to be like Matthias on Team Jesus, Lord. But we wonder, there's probably more than a few in this gathering or hearing us today that wonder, do I qualify? I didn't go to seminary. I didn't. I'm a first-generation Christian. I don't even have a Christian family. You said going to a Christian school. I, I didn't even go to school. We wonder, could you possibly use people like us? But we see in this story this morning, Lord, that your, your credentials, the things you have that qualify somebody for the job, is most of all a heart for you. You boldly said to King Asa long, long ago, the eyes of the Lord searched to and fro throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I want to be that guy all the time, Lord. 
If you're with me right now, would you just pray this? You can whisper it. Whisper it loud enough for you to hear yourself pray it. If, you're, if you want his blessing and the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life for his glory, would you pray these words right now? Would you just, just find in me a heart that is for you, Lord? Are you praying that? Find in me a heart that is for you. Put me in your service, empowered by your spirit to bring you glory. If I ever waver from a heart for you, touch me, touch me again, Holy Spirit, and turn me back to you and use me some more until I can be home with you and hear, hear you say, welcome home, faithful one. Nicely done. So we're here again, surrendered, Lord. We don't come as completed people. We come to the completer. So as we respond in song, let it be a real statement of our hearts. In this moment, and for each day to come, until we're face to face with